Well, well, well. I've been looking forward to this one. On this episode, we're joined by famed, and I'm going to be a little bit cheeky here and say almost historic, almost, Professor Gary Wilson. He's been to Antarctica too many times to count, conducting and leading scientific expeditions for over three decades. Three decades. He's a TEDx speaker, has lectured at the University of Oxford, He's chair of the NZ Royal Society Committee on Antarctic Sciences, was recently made the vice president of the scientific community on Antarctic research, aka SCAR, which just quietly is a pretty big deal, a Blake Leader Award winner, and lots of other really fancy titles. But seeing as this is the longest episode of the series, we'll leave it at that. I'm sure you get the point. Gary's a climate legend around the world because of his work as a professor in the marine environment space. He's focused on marine geology and the marine geological record of ocean and climate change. If I could boil it down to one simple metaphor, he's like a natural world investigator, taking the climate events of the past, like the past past, long time ago, creating trends and relating them back to today and his job is to try and fill the gaps and pages of the book in between. Look, he can certainly explain things a lot better, and boy oh boy did he. Thank you Gary for this incredible chat. Took us a while to get into it, (laughs) but when we did, I think we made some real ground in bettering our understanding and perspective on the global climate challenges and crisis we're now facing. I hope you enjoy this chat with Gary. For me, it was certainly one of the more significant ones. Professor Gary Wilson, thank you very much for uh, for popping in and, uh, well, just being on the podcast here with me today. It's great to be here. Mm, absolutely. So we'll start off with uh, one of the sort of reoccurring themes of the podcast is trying to talk about how connected Antarctica is to our lives, even though for a lot of us we can't touch it, we won't ever see it, we won't get to experience it, um, it actually plays quite an important role in the day, well, the day-to-day life of how we live and the things that we take for granted. For example, a consistent and stable climate. How is uh, what happens in Antarctica and Antarctica's climate related to what happens for us up here, closer to the equator? Yeah, so... If you dial it right back, um, we we forget sitting here in New Zealand that actually we're part of a global system. So we've got uh, a big current running up the east side of, of New Zealand, um, but that's driven by Antarctica and received by the Arctic. So in the ocean kind of as the the water is cooled and made more dense because it becomes saltier in Antarctica as it freezes and it sinks and floods off across the bottom of the ocean and eventually partly surfaces in the north and comes back. So it's Pro- a lot about the ocean. So it probably takes in in its longest leg, maybe up to a thousand years for the ocean to turn over like that. Right. But it's not just about the ocean turning over. The ocean moving around the planet like that is the biggest deliverer of heat from one part of the planet to another. So it regulates heat around the planet long term, you know, not day to day, but, you know, decade to century to century it regulates heat around the planet. And the atmosphere does the same, but on a shorter time scale. And that's why we've got westerly winds in the south and a jet stream in the north. It's all about that temperature gradient from the equator to the pole and how the, and on a spinning planet, and how the atmosphere sort of carves itself up and moves from place to place. Right. And without the cold, engine if you like in the south you don't get either of those processes that's right so it's a regulator so it's always uh so from what i can remember from i seem to be recalling a lot of my uh 
year 11 geography days it, it cools at the poles yep. and then it, it goes from the poles and it shifts back up near the equator in that, in that sort of circular motion well it, yeah it actually in the ocean it goes all the way to the arctic right. in some cases and then comes back through the uh, tropics right. and is finally warm and so what is, what is, what's the point of this regulation? Why, why is it good for us? Well, exactly, because it moves heat around the planet. I mean, it's really great for the United Kingdom because that's the Gulf Stream, right? Right. That's, bringing, that's one of those major currents okay. that brings um, warm water up into the higher latitudes where you'd normally expect it to be cooler. So it changes the temperature profile that you might just expect from latitude. Okay. And if we're talking about currents, then in terms of driving that circulation, the single biggest current on the planet's the Antarctic Circumpolar Current. And so is that that big current that goes around the whole continent at the bottom of the world? That's right. It's the only place on the planet where all the oceans are connected. Right. And it goes from west to east, and it has the the um, the westerlies above it, which of course were the great sailing routes that the clippers sailed on to move around the planet before we had um, petroleum and Engines, diesel and fuel houses. oil that they could use to steam across the ocean in a different direction. Right. So that, Interesting. Yeah, that's really, so a lot happens in that space between the bottom of New Zealand and Antarctica in terms of um, connecting up the world in terms of a global system. Right. And New Zealand's very close to it. The northern boundary of the Antarctic Circumpolar Current kind of touches the bottom end of New Zealand and sweeps up the east side and off towards the Chatham Rise. Right. So New Zealand can't get away from the fact that we are essentially on the Antarctic Riviera. Mm. And what's happening with that system, both in an atmospheric sense and an ocean sense, is, is, is delivered to New Zealand and New Zealand has little chance of regulating itself independently. Mm. These big continents like Australia, North America, you know, they generate their own climate to a degree um, because they're big dry continents but New Zealand doesn't have that. No. We get the maritime situation and we get it from the edge of the Antarctic Circumpolar Current and the mm. westerly winds. Okay. Okay and so it's alright so Antarctica is this big chiller at the bottom of the world uh, it obviously has to be pretty big to to be able to do what it does for our, our the whole globe's climate. How how big is this piece of ice at the bottom of the world? Um, it is what is it? Twenty something quadrillion tons. Mm. Quite a which few. Is a, quite a, a few thousand, drinks on the rocks. Then a thousand million million. Yeah, if you look at the the total volume of ice of Antarctica, if you melted it and put it into the ocean you would raise sea level by between 50 and 60 metres around the globe. Yeah, the whole globe would just be sunk in a way. Well, yes. Up to 60 metres. There would be 60 metres more water in the ocean. How the land edge would respond to that has a whole lot of other things that play into it as well. Okay. Um, But that's huge. I don't think we need to worry too much about that but I think what we do need to worry about is the fact that if you look more closely at this big cube of ice in Antarctica half of it sits on a big continent Mm. of East Antarctica and the other half sits on the sea floor right so it's connected to the ocean yeah and it's much easier to melt ice when you bring it into contact with water with water Um, especially the fact that the water is warmer than the atmosphere is. So it, um, that's something one would worry more about because that is more responsive. And in fact, when we look at um, records of past behaviour, that has been the bit that's been highly responsive. It doesn't, so doesn't mean that the east isn't responsive, but we know that the west Antarctic, which is actually, if you're looking south from New Zealand to the east, and east Antarctic is actually to the west, if you're looking south from New Zealand. 
Got to remember, we're on the op- opposite side of the planet from the Greenwich Meridian. Right. Yeah. yeah. See, this is where you really need some uh, some visualization <laughs> yeah. of something to help out here, not just podcast audio. Is yeah, it? That's right. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, why is Antarctica? We talk about how responsive it is. It's obviously a very sensitive place to temperature change, whether it's in the air or in the ocean. Why is it so? Why is it so sensitive? Someone told me that if you get one degree warming around the equator, that is roughly the same as two degrees warming at the poles. Yeah, it's at least double. So that, and we know that from looking at past temperature change. So we know that that's the case. Um, that the poles warm to a greater degree than the equator. And if you think about the way the planet works, um, the current situation is that the um, the Earth is tilted on its axis. So the poles are brought closer to the sun, if you like, than they might normally be if the axis of rotation were vertical. That's right, okay. So that's that's the... the so it's actually quite logical. Yes. Yeah. And, that, and that's what's interesting and what's not, what is very surprising is that both poles normally, if we look at the geological record, warm equally... Um, to a greater degree than the equator. And at the moment, the Arctic is warming to a much greater degree, more than double the equator. Mm. But the Antarctic is not. Mm. And we don't know the answer as to why not. There are a number of factors that might lead into it that have been suggested, uh, not all tested. Um, One is the ozone hole. Mm. Um, Ozone is a greenhouse gas and there's a lack of it over Antarctica, so that means that Antarctica may not be warming as fast. But of course, over the next 50 years, we'll see that heal up. Yeah. Um, Another is simply how large and cold the ice sheet is, so it may have a greater degree of inertia. Um, It might be to do with the fact that um, the circulation of ocean bringing warm water in has a degree of inertia to it so that I mean eventually we know Antarctica will respond Um, the the other is simply I mean we're dealing with this issue of of let's talk about what we mean by climate change I think that's useful here very much so and that is the fact that we have cycles of climate and climate is essentially the pattern of temperature weather winds over a period of time so when we talk about changing climate we talk about changing trends of temperature we talk about changing trends of winds it's the bigger picture i think that's one of the most the biggest misconceptions when people think climate is related to weather events as such but they're just an aspect of the overall climate yeah that's right just because it's been warm in dunedin doesn't mean that the planet's warming yeah and when we talk about a warming planet we tend to put a number on it two degrees is that uh, what we'd like to limit it to um, from the Paris Agreement yeah. and that's two degrees on average which probably means less than one degree at the equator and four or five degrees perhaps at the poles. At the poles. Haven't thought about it like that. Yeah so two degrees average might not be still so great for the poles as we know because the Arctic's already responding um, sort of irrecoverably. Mm. Um, and at some point in the Antarctic we know will follow. Um, so that's, and but that climate changes naturally. So, you know, we have ice ages and we have warm periods and, and we, you know, 18,000 years ago came out of the last glacial and over a period of about 10,000 years warmed up to the present Holocene. We call it the Holocene, the last right. 10,000 years. Yep. Um, and... So that happens naturally. And we know that temperature warms and we know that carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere increase. Right. When temperature warms. When temperature warms. That's a pretty the, obvious correlation. The two move hand in hand and they move slowly. So th- I talked about a 10,000-year period, though that's much quicker than it took to go into the glacial period so it probably took more like 60 or 70,000 years to get into an ice age and only 10,000 years to come out of it Mm. it's much harder to make ice sheets than it is to melt them right 
Yep. Um, and then the melt, though, can happen quite rapidly. You know, when the northern hemisphere ice sheet's melted at its peak, um, the sea level rise associated with that melt was, was about four centimetres a year. So four metres per hundred years at the peak of melt. Um, so naturally these things can happen quite quickly. So we shouldn't be complacent in thinking, oh, it's a huge block of ice. It has this immense inertia when it starts to melt. Right, yeah. It can it go momentum. quite rapidly. Yeah. That's right. So that's the natural system. These things happen in consort. But the current situation is one where we've decoupled it. Right. So rather than taking centuries and millennia to change the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, we've done it in one century to a much greater degree than any time in the last million years. And we've essentially decoupled. We've really rocked the world with CO2, haven't we? Yeah, so we've decoupled the atmospheric situation from the rest of the climate system. So when we talk about climate system, we mean... Yes, atmosphere, chemistry, ocean, chemistry of the ocean, ice sheets. That's one big system. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so we decoupled one bit. And what we're really waiting, <laughs> trying to work out is how quickly is the rest of it going to catch up? Right. Uh, how long have we got? Or to what degree can we decouple it? And that's pretty difficult to answer mm. um, from the geological record. What we can tell you is sort of how long, if you keep carbon dioxide at the level we've got in a sustained way, which the last time the planet did that was about three million years ago, over the period of about a century or so, mm. plus or minus, maybe several centuries, then the West Antarctic ice sheet was lost. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of the idea of realising that we're, we're playing with things so much bigger than us now you know it's so much uh, more powerful than us i think people think oh climate change and it's just like yes there's more co2 in the air now uh that just affects maybe i guess i'm getting less oxygen maybe more co2 in my breathing things like that but it's realizing that we're separating systems and we're changing systems of the whole climate and how the world functions away from any natural deviation that's happened before or any natural trends, et cetera, that we've been able to figure out using, obviously, the science that you guys do in Antarctica and looking at the ice. And so I think it's, uh, I love that point that you made, how it's like decoupling what would other usually, you know, usually be a natural cycle from something now which is completely artificial in a way, isn't it? Well, it is, and we've not had these... Le- and the normal... When I talk about normal climate variability, say for the last million years, um, the carbon dioxide has run between about 180 and 280 parts per million um, of CO2 in the atmosphere. Yep. And right now we're at 410. So it's already, yeah, it's double already vibes. And the whole climate variability again, right. and within 100 years. So that's, you know, it's uncharted territory for sure. That's right. That doesn't mean we can't go all the way back in geological time and find warmer periods of the planet to try and work out that's right. how the system responds to that warmth. And that's yeah. part of what we do as scientists to try and, you know, as we look forward, there's, there's, it's like, oh, so we've done that. What now? What's going to happen? There's all this uncertainty. It's pretty hard to take action and plan on that degree of uncertainty. Mm. Um, so the job of research is really to fill the knowledge gap to reduce the uncertainty and the more we can do that the more people can act on it right yeah it's no good really arguing about this whole space where we don't have enough knowledge it's like the idea of if we if we know the numbers then we can figure out how to manage it kind of thing right that's right i mean the other thing we need to instill in people's minds is and there's a great quote in um jim hansen's book on um Neil Armstrong, First Man, the movie that people have been to see. It's not in the movie, but it's in the book. If you read the start of the book, when he asks Neil Armstrong about what it is that he hoped to make a difference on, he comments on the view from space and the perspective that while you're on the surface of the planet, atmosphere seems quite um, adequate, right? Mm. It's all around you. Everything you need to do is covered by it. Well, you sit out in space and it's 
not even visible. Mm. It is such a small part of the planetary system that it is something one would need to look after, protect and understand how to manage it carefully because it's easy to affect it and damage it and change it, etc. And that's something that Armstrong was saying in the 60s. Well, that was one of, that, that image was what kind of, it's known to be the image that really kicked in the environmental movement, wasn't it? That picture of the planet from from an outer perspective and looking at it as one big ball. Oh, the thin blue line. The yes. thin blue line. That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. And so once you start to get this picture of the fact that actually it's a very thin blanket, the ocean is not that much bigger, um, if at all. And we're talking about, you know, that's our life support system, mm. <laughs> you know. Um, it's just unusual, and this comes from the book again, unusual that it's on the outside of your spaceship rather than the inside, your life support system, but it is on the outside, and, mm. and, um, and that's how it is. Um, so that's kind of where we sit. And so uh, one of my favourite, I just have to ask you this question, what do you like to say to sceptics? Or like what, you know, I think a lot of people who uh, will probably listen to this will come in into, um, will meet those people that still don't believe in climate change or still don't believe that we are tampering with the atmosphere beyond what we can probably handle or those that don't believe in it um how, what's what's your sort of response to them because i think we all we all would appreciate um having a bit of ammunition and going into those discussions with those people well i mean it's always difficult to respond because it depends on the the question that's being asked mm. but it's a fact that we've changed the composition of the atmosphere. And it's a fact that higher levels of carbon dioxide parallel warmer planets. And it's a fact that when you sustain the planet for a period of time at higher levels of CO2 and higher temperatures, ice sheets melt and sea levels rise. And it happens naturally. Mm. And I suspect um, the challenge is to what degree that's going to happen this time mm. and whether or not we want to take action. So you, you, the climate sceptics can't argue with the fact that climate changes. Mm. It does. Yeah. And they can't argue with the fact that actually it changes um, in, in ways that are difficult for people who live in the coastal zones to recover from. Um, the argument, I suppose, is if it happens naturally, what can we do about it? Well, actually, this time it hasn't happened naturally. Mm. We decoupled the CO2. Mm. And what we really want to know is are we, how resilient is the mm. planet to that? Mm. And yes, the planet long term won't care. Mm. That's right. <laughs> you know? This could see, just this, be Mother Earth's little trick into getting rid of the humans. Well, yeah. <laughs> I love that theory. Uh, there is, there is a. a when one looks in the geological record, often these climate-induced um, extinction events do impact more on the most evolved species at the time <laughs> because they found their niche to live in, right? And they, they become immovable. They're and not, they, they can't migrate. Comfortable and yeah. complacent. So, so I, I don't, you know... But the challenge here is let's not be frightened about the future uncertainty. It mm. is uncertain. Mm. And that's what makes it and, and that's so tricky. the domain of research to work out. Um, but we have some certainties right now, and we can act on those certainties. What are those certainties? Well, we know that we have increased carbon dioxide by burning fossil fuels and cutting down trees to 410 parts per million. And we know that we're increasing it by about 2% a year at the moment, if you look at the starting point being 300 parts per million because yep. that's the natural variability. Okay. So it's, yeah, it's about two parts per mil per year at the moment. So mm. about 2%. Mm. And when you look at it that way, I and mean, that's what we've done. We've, we've slowly increased it over the last century. But that's what we need to think about in terms of the scale of the challenge is the, the 2%. Mm. Let's look at that. I mean, the research in the uncertain domain may tell us that actually you don't have 50 years to reduce by 2% a year. But at least if we get started in the what we know, and 2%, it all, it's, it's a tractable problem, right? All of a sudden we're not arguing about something we don't know, 
we're arguing about something we know and we can do something about. Two percent. Two percent. And actually, then there's a bunch of myths around it and people panic. Oh, it's going to cost me money. I don't have money, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, there are a bunch of actions you can take and every one of them saves you money, Mm. you know. If you think about the New Zealand profile of, of carbon emission, it's about half what we eat and half how we transport ourselves around. Yeah. And any one of those things, if you change what you eat to a degree, you know, people won't think about, I, I call it the Sunday night fridge challenge. People don't think about yes. what they eat on Sunday night. Right. They just get in the car, they drive out, they get takeaways. Ah, yes. And then on Monday, they throw the food that was in the fridge out. And if you set yourself a goal of, oh, I'll make dinner out of what's Mm. in the fridge. Yeah. You know, and highly likely you could easily make fried rice, which is what you would have driven out and got. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, so you can actually change and then you won't throw the food out the next day. And all of a sudden that move towards sustainability not only Becomes made a difference it's a, manageable an idea and it made a difference in terms of your carbon emission but actually it probably saved you 30 or 40 bucks by the time you got in the car and drove out and for two people paid mm. 10 yeah, to yeah, 20 absolutely. bucks each for dinner you know absolutely and so actually it's not and everything you do in the space i mean i'm driving an electric car yeah and driving that electric car is probably saving me about four thousand dollars a year in petrol mm, cost. That's right. And that's when I take into account the cost of the electricity and it's a plug in hybrid, so there's some fuel consumption, but that's a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. And yes, I had to invest in the capital to do it. Like and with I'm, any new car though? Yeah, and I'm not suggesting everyone should run out and buy a new car because that's not helpful you've got to do it in a sustainable way mm. when your car needs replacing that's consider right. something that's gonna yeah. save you a lot of money yeah so i like that idea so two percent okay so if we're going up two percent every year roughly the idea is that we should all try and reduce our emission profile by two percent every year to counter that in a way that's right okay and, so and then and then people will say to me oh, okay so i don't drive my car um, and I just look at them and say, well, so how are you going to save your 2%? Because, and you know, in the, in the famous words of David Longy, slightly altered here, <laughs> I can still smell the carbon on your breath. <laughs> you know, I have not met anyone who has a zero carbon existence. No. We're all, we all use it. Absolutely. Um, but actually at 2% reduction and the financial saving you get from it and the move to different sorts of technology mm. over a 50-year period is something that actually people are willing to take on. Yeah. And, you know, then there's arguments about, oh, New Zealand is such a small country, we can't make a difference. Well, in the Antarctic space, we punch way above our weight We're in terms of having... Well, weight. we are, but in the Antarctic space in particular, mm. you know, we lead a lot of direction. Um, not all of it, well, but... it's leadership, isn't it? It is, that's leadership. And... So we actually have greater influence in terms of the research space. So we can invest in the research and actually influence response on the rest of the planet because we're filling that knowledge gap and creating certainty. And, you know, the politicians say to us, well, give us some certainty and we'll write you some policy. Mm, right. Okay. And we'll do something so about it. that's what they want. That's what the politicians want. That's what want. they want. They so want certainty. And the only way you can generate that is increasing the research that's right. Okay. And so uh, 2%, right. So, uh, yep, stop using your car, public transport, ride your bike, all not, those things. Not stop using your car. Look, if you drive your car mm. 50 times yep. in a fortnight, 2% change in that is 48 times in a fortnight. So let's not be yeah. overly it's dramatic not here. Let's, yeah, let's actually, and then, of course, you've got to go to... 46 and so on okay. into future years yes but of course that that's all all bets are off if you go electric okay. because that, that's a renewable resource in new zealand it's not the same if you live in florida because mm. most of your electricity is generated by burning coal mm. so it's a little bit horses for courses around the planet right and you have to think carefully about what what the the whole of your carbon footprint yeah. is not just 
it is individuals. You can't blame the transport companies or whatever because it's you that turns the key and drives the car. It's you that eats the food. You're the consumer. So you can't blame the farmers because they're providing the food, right? But you can work with the farmers to add their 2%, et cetera, et cetera. And so if everyone does it. And the other thing is, and then people say, oh, so we do that in New Zealand and we're only X percent of the world's population, et cetera. But actually, if you look at the OECD numbers per capita, mm. we're the third worst in the world. Oh, absolutely. We're in terms of our emissions. Yeah, we love, we love to sort of be on our and high it, horse about and it. And it is our transport. You know, we don't have as much public transport, et cetera, as, as other countries. And it is our farming. Mm. But it still means actually per capita... And those are two. We've got to lead the way. Two easily identified areas to work on. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so two percent. Yes, uh, we have some of those general ideas. What were? What are some ideas maybe that uh, you wouldn't necessarily think of that are ways of, of being able to do? You know, employ this idea of reducing your carbon footprint by two percent or your greenhouse gas footprint by two percent. Yeah, looking at how you heat your house. I mean, if you if you can um, not if you can increase the efficiency of your heating, um, if you can not put in a gas caliphant for heating water because that's a fossil fuel, you know, mm. yes, you might have to wait a couple of seconds for the hot water to come from the electric cylinder, but you know I what? they're faster. The hot water cylinder is than a caliphant? No, the caliphant delivers because it's right oh, next to where you're using the water. I'm thinking about tea boiling. I'm thinking about boiling oh, yeah. water from a tea. Yeah, electric kettle rather than using the gas stove. There's, there are, there's all sorts of technology available to you. Eating the, local, not imported goods. That's right. Eat uh, in season. Less plastic just in general in your whole consumption of things. Well, plastic's an interesting one because it's not really that closely linked to the climate situation and CO2. It, it's another issue. Um, in terms of the fact that the planet's connected with ocean circulation, etc. Yes, there are big plastic slicks floating on the surface. Most sort of centres of some of the big oceans, most of the big oceans, in fact, have have plastic in them that's just sitting there in this Mm. huge slick. Um, But it didn't come from the middle of the ocean. It came from, it got washed out of um, rivers and off yeah, the land washed and into the, yeah. washed into the ocean and then eventually accumulated in the middle of these big gyres in the ocean. So the whole thing's connected up. You can't just say, oh, it doesn't look bad here in New Zealand. Yeah, you yeah know, absolutely. It's, it's interesting. I've been um, on the southern part of the Falkland Islands and um, walking along the beach and there's um, plastic bottles that have... Um, Korean writing on them. There's plastic bottles that have um, New they're from New Zealand. I even tripped over a huge cowrie log that had, you know, just been transported across the ocean and washed up on the beach there. We're we're very connected by this ocean, absolutely, and and by the atmosphere and and the and the climate system. So we can't think of ourselves as just being little old us. Mm. Um, and New Zealand more than anyone because actually we don't we kind of get what we get. Mm out of the ocean and climate system, mm. we we don't have that much influence on shaping the global ocean and climate system. Mm. But we have to find other ways to influence through our international partnerships, working in Antarctica, things like that. Yeah, I feel like uh, you know times, times are changing and will continue to change. And the idea of everybody needing to think of themselves as global citizens versus just national citizens all the time is definitely more relevant. Yeah, and interestingly, I mean, you know, um, Obviously, it's a, a, a difficult political climate to be a global citizen at the moment with such nationalistic response to things. Yeah. Um, but actually, New Zealand can, can help take the lead there too. And Antarctica is this exemplar, right? I mean, it, it is governed collectively by the treaty members. Um, and they sit around the table for one week of every year and agree how they're going to govern the place and then they abide by those agreements and each country then puts those agreements into law so the whole whether or not you go close to wildlife and disturb wildlife dump litter all that sort of thing if you're a New Zealander down there it's in New Zealand law um, how you'll be um, treated and what you're allowed to do if you're an American it's in American law yeah Um, and that's how countries have agreed to work so 
it's a real exemplar in how we should work to yeah. deal with the issue. Um, it becomes much harder when you move away to people's home countries. Um, but Antarctica is probably a great way to actually have the countries around the table. And Antarctica also though, <laughs> presents the biggest risk in terms of changing global sea levels and the climate system. So um, at the moment, it, it's not responding as quickly as we might expect. Um, but it's only a matter of time before we push it enough. Right. Um, so why do we need to care about all this? Why do we need to really start um, reducing our carbon? Why do we need? Why should we be motivated to reduce this decoupling effect that we've now created? Well, if we care anything about our fellow citizens, um, just because we live at 60 metres above sea level um, in a, you know, in a, a mountain town mm. doesn't doesn't give us the right to say stuff the rest of you we don't care if you go underwater I mean I think we need to actually be a bit more humanitarian about our response um, but the biggest challenge for countries is going to be the fact that our whole economies are built around the coastal environment you mm. know our it's something like 75% of the world lives on the coast right yeah, yeah. Um, and our biggest um, cities are port cities because that's how we've evolved. So that's how it started. That's right. So actually, it's going to be pretty difficult to manage our way through this economically mm. without, well, it's going to be hugely impactful in terms of an economy, um, any individual country's economy, because they're, they're all based around what happens in the coastal zone. Mm. Um, and then that's for sea level rise. Of course, for changing climate in New Zealand... So what happens in climate change? It's something about, uh, you know, because it's a real positive feedback loop, as in once a lot of water goes into the ocean, um, uh, more energy from the sun is going into the ocean, that is increasing water vapour, that vapour goes into the system and that makes the storms more aggressive. I, I don't know exactly here, but what, what is it that makes climate change oh, threatening for these weather events and, and climate? Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's simply the energy of the system. So if you heat the system up, it has greater energy. Yeah. And that, is, that can change the storm intensity, and it changes the, the how things circulate. Um, and so the whole system's really just energised. So that's why storms are bigger. Um, but, uh, I, I mean... In New Zealand sense, it might not, it could be more subtle, you know. We've got, we rely, green New Zealand is all about rain. We get lots of it out of the ocean. But if you look to most of the South Island, all that rain is is one-to-one linked with the strength of the westerly winds. And so more wind, more rain. But the climate model predictions are that as you warm the planet, and you change the gradient of temperature from the equator to pole, so it's not as steep because Mm. the pole's warming faster than the equator, the westerly winds will move south. Interesting. And and as you cool the system, the westerly winds move north. And if they're the source of the rain and bring the moisture, then, you know... We face challenges in that respect. And it may be quite subtle. Um, but And that is the biggest problem of climate change. It's incremental. It's it's insidious, right? Mm. It's happening very slowly. And so... We need speed as humans, It's not coming through the front door. We need disasters to make action happen. We do tend to respond best when we're at war. (laughs) You know, that's some some of the greatest inventions and some of the greatest humanitarian acts and some of the greatest collaborations between nations is driven by in extreme events like wars. That's it's right. crazy, really. We should be able to do that in peace times as well. And I, but I think, you know... That's why we're talking about a climate crisis now, right? It's about trying to change the vocabulary from being like climate change, which is changing slowly but surely, to a crisis where it's like, right, it's happening now and we need to change to a mindset of, of you know, make change now. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm no specialist in the area of... of helping people respond to this issue but I don't think it's helpful to panic people unnecessarily I think it's better to actually for them to learn more about Mm. the situation that's I look at it in terms of okay let's look forward and there are all these uncertainties well that's the role of research to change that 
And if we look back, though, it's all fact. We know what we've done, um, and that's what we should start to act on. And that's where the 2% comes in. Let's deal with that, because we know it. It's factual, and, and we, can, we can do something about it. Looking forwards, the degree of uncertainty makes it difficult. What do we do? How far is it going to go? How far can we go? Can we push it? You know, how, how much resilience does the natural system have before it um, changes irrecoverably? Mm. It's really difficult to act on that stuff. It's much easier to act on the bits we know and help people get to get more knowledge around the bits that we don't know, the sort of uncertain future. But let's put our... We know that we've got to close the gap on that uncertainty, so we've got to put it into research effort. And that's and that is, would you say, our best, uh, you know, the best next step for us is, is getting better data so that we can go to policymakers and be like, this is the picture, now make the laws kind of thing. You know, is that is that the next frontier for fighting climate change? Good and solid science as well as making tangible actions to reduce our carbon footprint? Absolutely, because the, that's our biggest challenge is the degree of uncertainty, right? Then, so let's put knowledge into that space, which comes out of doing research and, mm. and gathering data. Otherwise, it's interpretation of, of things that aren't as factual as you would like. Um, but we know we can act on what we know already, and we know we need to. So let's deal with that. And we can develop policy around that. We know, you know, we're willing, I think, as people to understand that sustainability is a good thing. You know, changing our it's habits. It's logical. It's logical, right? And, and it, it comes out of a lot of native peoples and their understanding of the planet. If you look mm. after the environment, the environment will look after you. Right. It's not that difficult to comprehend. Um, but we're not quite so used to doing that on a global scale. Mm. And it, it really is difficult when actually you might look after your environment, but you'll get impacted because sea level will rise because someone else doesn't. Mm. So that's really difficult to deal with. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, someone's got to take the lead here and think about um, um, being more sustainable or, or leading that drive to say actually it's time. It's quite a large part of the piece of the puzzle right where you've got these developed nations being like hey we need to stop um, our footprint we need to reduce greenhouse gases we need to do all this immediately right now and then the, de the developing countries sit back and they go well hold on a minute that's that's not fair you guys used fossil fuels to help yourselves develop and get to a point of, of you know great infrastructure etc and development now what are we going to do if you're saying that we can't actually use these fuels which are easily accessible for us a lot often they have plenty of them and that's a, a resource there that they can use and make change happen fast for them to make their lives better the problem is, is that we're kind of taking a high horse and looking back and being like you guys need to change um, because we're having to change where they you know a lot of the developed countries don't um, necessarily want to make that change just yet, do they? They want to develop first. This is way out of my um, <laughs> sphere of, of expertise, but, uh, you know, there are just options. Just in general, yeah, uh, we, you know, your well, opinion. We've, we've got options, right? Um, and our options are to help transition to renewable resources. And I think if we'd have been having this conversation five, even five years ago, certainly ten we wouldn't have even really talked about electric cars. Mm. But that technology is moving fast. And I think if we can help the development of that technology, then, and you you go to some of those countries um, where they are developing, and actually they leap mm. over our steps of development. They don't have to do that stuff in the middle. They don't have phone lines mm. and phones. They just went straight into mobile and cell towers you know so uh, it's I think one needs to think carefully about the fact that you know I think it might be a bit of a red herring argument that that they want to have their time with the the really dirty burning fossil fuels we had like coal when they don't necessarily need to they can leap over it we can share with them our, our technological development so they don't have to reinvent what we've done and I think that does happen to a degree. I mean, I'm, I'm like you, this is beyond my depth, but 
I figure a lot of countries you see uh, in the developing world are actually employing renewable sources or um, different technologies away from fossil fuels. Oh, I mean, if you can make wind and solar work, I mean, it's, it's easy and much more cost effective than using generators mm. to generate power. And it's much more cost effective than burning coal, mm. you know. So I think the options are there and the difficulty is not so much nations that are just starting to develop because they've got all that new technology available to them. It's transitioning the ones that are reliant on um, old technology in terms of generating energy and things mm. like that. I think that's a harder um, ask than because they've got to start again when they've already established a way of mm. working. That, that's a really difficult one. Yeah, I think that's that's the thing about this problem is that it's gonna it's it'll be our greatest test. Uh, you know, that could be argued for sure. But as a human race, climate change and global heating is likely to be our greatest sort of challenge that we face in in terms of being able to remain humans on this planet, healthy and living. And you know, will we step up to it? Well, yes, that's quite dramatic. <laughs> Climate <laughs> we, crisis. Yeah, yeah, we have we we face a lot of challenges. I mean, that's why governing is so difficult, right? Because there are a lot of trade-offs. Um, but at this point, the global scale challenge, and and I think this is what makes climate changing climate the most challenging, is the fact that no one country can fix this for themselves or on their own. This requires a global effort, and that's what makes it a really daunting challenge. Mm. Well, I think, like with all great challenges, you know, hopefully we get to the end of it, first of all, but when we do get to the end of it, I think we'll, we'll learn so much, and as a human race, we'll be a lot, we'll just be better. Well, there's one lesson we should learn right now, which is stop pointing the finger. Mm. We all use it. We, we all rely on carbon. Yep. Um, for good reason, because it's it's been a, a way to get things done. Absolutely, but w- it's not someone else's fault. Yeah, you know, we we all can change our habits, and we can all change our habits by two percent a year, mm. and that's the place to get started. Absolutely. Oh yeah, thank you so much. Um, that was outstanding. Uh, yeah, all the best with the rest of your scientific endeavours down in Antarctica. How many trips have you had down there now? Just finished my thirtieth season, so. Um, that's 30 it's years. Ridiculous. It's uh, It's been, I've spent more than, well, probably close to four years of my life in Antarctica. Um, thankfully, I haven't wintered because I think that would be really difficult. <laughs> and that's not um, what I go for. I go to, you know, do the science and, and Get it done. find the new Use information. Use the daylight. That's right. Oh, perfect. Thanks so much, Gary. Great. I couldn't think of a better man nor a better chat to finish the series with. Seems crazy to say, but that's a wrap. If you've joined us for every episode, my hat's off to you, seriously. I'm stoked you found value in it. It's been a wild ride making this series. From the pre-Antarctic phase, to the actual mission in Antarctica, and the whole post-production process. I couldn't have done it alone, and I'd like to thank all those who have helped turn this idea into a reality. To all my fine guests, to the organisations that made this trip to Scott Base possible, the Sir Peter Blake Trust and Antarctica New Zealand, to Sons of the South for the best merino gear ever, to Mako Road for the use of their fine tunes, and to those who have worked in the background, a special shout out to my man Seth Murray. Thank you. Nobody gets anywhere without the help of others along the way. The more we can all help each other, the better off we'll all be. I'm still struggling to digest everything I've learned and experienced over the last couple months. That will likely continue for a while. But I thought I might try and consolidate on an idea that really came across throughout. I think what has been the greatest learning of this project is how connected our world is to itself. The podcast project has reinforced the belief that every environmental system that the Earth has to support life on Earth 
is interconnected to one another. Whether it is the penguins that depend on the stability of the ice in Antarctica to survive, the corals, the ocean food chains, and oxygen-producing marine life that require stable ocean chemistry, or the humans that have their crops washed away in extreme events of rain due to more intensely charged weather. As climate change continues to have a heavy impact on the sensitive environment that is Antarctica, we will see other global issues arising because of it. Global conflicts, droughts, fires, weather extremes, and a battling living system that has been heavily taxed throughout our development. This idea of connection, however, is also the seed of hope. That if we can solve root problems such as climate change, we stand in much better stead to solve all the connected issues that arise from it. More than ever, uncertainty reducing climate science in Antarctica is required to protect our home. It's been a real pleasure to see how global scientists and organisations are facilitating such work in that area. Science is incredibly important to our world as we move forward as a species and planet for all living things to survive. Antarctica is an incredible place of undisputable beauty, raw beauty. For me, beauty is one of life's great healers. Beauty gives hope, beauty humbles, beauty warms, beauty unites. No matter what happens in our lives and this world, we will find beauty. How we as a nation of people and global community have come together over the Christchurch terror tragedy has been another example of raw beauty. The phrase, we are one, brings us together. It transcends not just different beliefs, but also different species. Through respect, love and unity for a better future, we will always find common ground. Let's use and embrace beauty as a tool for making the world a more conscious and better place for all. Thank you for your time and ears. And for one last time, here's to Antarctica.